So we are, we're following with J.I. Packer in his book, The Knowing God. And we have come to the part in the book where he talks about the Holy Spirit. And so it's a, a coincidence, but not really, that uh, on Pentecost Sunday we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, as we think about the Holy Spirit, um, I think it's, it's probably one of the aspects of the subject of knowing God that is most to do with, with traveling. Um, so we have the idea that the balconiers are those who know the theory and the theology, and it's good to consult with them, but they also need to get their, their feet on the road as well. But for the travelers, they need to stop sometimes and make sure that they have the right things packed in their minds and uh, in their travel bags. And in Acts chapter 1, we're going to see that there was a point in time when Jesus said to his disciples, don't move an inch, right? So if, if he was looking at the balconiers and the travelers, he would say to the balconiers, just hold on a minute. You travelers, don't move an inch. Don't take a step until you get what it means that the Holy Spirit has come. So don't even try to start living the Christian life. Don't start trying to serve. Don't start going on mission until you get that the Holy Spirit has come. Because without him, there is no journey. There, there's no traveling that's going to be productive at all. So we're, we're going to stop there as well today, and we're going to have a look at what we believe as followers of Jesus um, concerning the Holy Spirit. So in the Christian church, there are three creeds, and those three creeds are from the 2nd, the 4th, and the 6th century, and they are the creeds of orthodoxy. So in all of the thousands of years that the church has been on earth, has been in formation, um, the things that we believe in common have been coalesced into three creeds. And there is very, very little divergence um, among denominations between um, the Christian church in its expression as a Catholic expression, as an Orthodox expression, Western, Eastern. Um, we in the evangelical tradition have kind of tuned up uh, the creeds with a little bit more specificity. Um, but nonetheless, all around the world, those who call themselves Christians would organize their belief around the creeds, one of the three creeds. So the first was the Nicene Creed, and the second was the, um, after the Nicene Creed, um, there was a creed called the Apostles. No, the Apostles' Creed was the first creed, then the Nicene Creed. So the Apostles' Creed, not literally from the Apostles, but in the second century, um, Christian doctrine basically found its, its moorings in the Apostles' Creed. In the fourth century, um, the Nicene Creed became the dominant theme of the Orthodox Church of Christianity. And then finally, in the sixth century, actually about 500 AD, um, the Athanasian Creed came into existence. All three of these creeds are Trinitarian creeds. They are organized around the Trinity. And when we get to the Athanasian Creed, it is quite specific in talking about how we understand the Father to be different from the Son to be different from the Spirit. And so here's a very small part of the Athanasian Creed, which goes on forever. Um, and talking about the Trinity, it says this to us, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. 
And here we, we come across a few words that we don't use. I mean, we don't talk about anything being begotten, and yet it becomes this really powerful and important theological word in the creed. The second part of the Trinitarian statement is this. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. All right, so Father's not begotten. The Son is begotten. And packed away in that one little word, begotten, is a whole theology. The third part of it is what we are told in this creed about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So here we have another word, proceeding. And you may be interested to know that there was a huge division, and it still continues among the Christian church, um, between some orthodox expressions and western expressions, um, about whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. So in our version of it, we would say that the Holy Spirit has proceeded from the Father and the Son, but the filioque um, debate in um, the churches beyond the sea uh, said, no, the, the Holy Spirit did not proceed from the Son, but only from the Father. So we're going to resolve that today. No. <laughs> no, just pointing it out. If you're interested in reading, Google and there's some truth when, you know, Wikipedia says something. At least you know what other people say, and they don't know either. Um, but but it'll, it'll all be there. But the point is, we, we try to sort out, what is the Trinity? And we end up saying that, that we need to confess the Trinity in order to be Orthodox Christians, in order to be conservative, faithful Christians to the traditions that have been handed down to us. So how do we understand the difference between the members of the Godhead? We don't. Um, we tend to fall into a little practical error or heresy of ranking them. And even the Athanasian Creed might push us in that direction because when you read what I've just presented to you, you have the Father starting as sort of God of gods, and then the Son is somehow begotten of the Father. And what does that mean? We sing Christmas carols about it, right? Begotten, not, right? But, but what does that mean? That he was the only begotten son of the father. Um, in modern translations would, would probably render it something like the, the one and only son of the father. That, that's how they translate the word begotten. But what does that mean? And then finally, what does it mean that the spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. And does that not seem like a ranking, that there's God who is the God of gods, and then from him is begotten the second of the Godhead, and from the two of them is proceeded the third member of the, the Godhead, and we end up putting the Holy Spirit at a rank, um, and then it's confused by the fact that we don't easily or readily imagine the Holy Spirit as a person. So we can find ourselves referring to the Holy Spirit as it um, and thinking of it in a, in a more sort of vague, um, cloud sort of form, uh, whereas the Father, we get the image of a Father, we get the image of a Son. We know that the Son is the only begotten, you know, loved Son of the Father, but how does the Holy Spirit relate 
to the Father and the Son. And what was it that happened when he proceeded from the Father and the Son? So let me go back to the beginning and ask the question, so our Christian heritage and our creeds commit us to being Trinitarian, to believing in a trinity. Because there are aberrant groups and there are other faiths who say that it's at that point that we cannot agree with you. God does not have a son, and it is impossible, it's inconceivable that three beings would be one and one being would be three. But we're saying, but actually that's our starting point. We, we can't diverge from that. Um, we have historically convinced um, ourselves by the study of scripture and by theological reflection that God is one and God is three. And the way we describe how they uh, are manifest is by these tricky words. Um, but then we should ask ourselves, but is it, are we sure it's a biblical notion? Because someone will say to you, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a heresy that was invented you know, by someone sometime, but it's, the Bible doesn't teach that God is one and yet God is three. So, so let me just go back a little bit of review from last Sunday, but also farther back than that, we'll go to Genesis 1, and I've just put Genesis 1 and John 1 kind of juxtaposed um, to hear what the Bible is saying about the nature of God, and in particular, the Trinitarian nature of God. Because there's, there's a little part in Genesis chapter 1 that I think we, we read past and don't sort of stop and say, oh, what was that? So here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's our theology of creation. The story of creation in Genesis 1 is not a mechanical description of how creation happened necessarily. It's a theology, it's a story to, to counteract the other creation myths that prevailed in, in the region. So here's, here's the Judeo-Christian story that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How he did it was within his incredible wisdom and power. But that's, that's the very first premise of our Judeo-Christian heritage, that we believe in a created creation and a God who created us. John then picks up on that and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So do you remember the, gram the grammar rule from last week? I'm sure, Lewis, you probably remember, what was it? Oh, you do. The Granville Sharp rule. I thought you would all have gone home and Googled it and studied, no, okay, it's the Granville Sharp rule that says that there's no other way to translate this than to say in the third little instance that the word was God, not the word was a God. It must be translated the word was God. So here's John, and he is basically rhyming with Genesis chapter 1 and saying here is the theology of creation in um, a more Trinitarian version, which is that what happened when God created the heavens and the earth is that God the Son was actually the agent. He was the and God said of Genesis 1, and now he's called the Word. It's a Greek philosophical term, but John takes it over and says this is a very good way to describe the Son. He's the Word, and that rhymes with Genesis 1. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then this is what I think we, we sometimes read past. 
And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I don't, I get a really crazy picture in my head trying to imagine what that language would even try to connote, right? Is it a cloud, a fog? Um, is it a being, an, an angelic being? But nonetheless, it's right in the beginning of the story is it's a Trinitarian involvement in creation. So we have God who says and brings things into existence. And then John says, and by the way, that was the son who was doing that. And in the middle of it all, it was the Holy Spirit who was hovering over the surface of the waters then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And John, if we took the time, he goes on to say, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he was the light, enlightening every person coming into the world. So John does a whole unpacking of Genesis 1. But for our purposes this morning, I think we, we hear that both the Mosaic record of Genesis and John's record of his, his gospel is that this was all about a trinity. So we get a little bit later in Genesis 1, and we have God saying, and God said, let us make man in our image. And he meant Father, Son, and Spirit. So then we have the whole unfolding of the story of God and us, and the particular roles that each of the members of the Godhead have undertaken while being fully God, having not divested themselves ever of any of their deity, the Son is always and fully God, the Spirit is always and fully God, there is no ranking, there is an assuming of, of a hierarchy when the Son says, I will come and do your will. Not because you are of higher authority than me, but it is my choice, our choice, for redemption and for salvation. And so the son finds himself in subservience to the father by his choice, and then we find that the spirit actually comes along and says, and let me serve both of you. But the one who's saying that is not inferior to the two that he's talking to. He is equally God, co-equal, co-eternal. And so as soon as we begin to sort one thing out, we have to go back and say, oh yeah, but he was not less than them. Why is he doing what they tell him to do? And there's a, a redeeming little verse that says, and when God is all and in all, I think it talks about a return um, to the, the, the point of, of perfect equilibrium and balance um, that happens when they have all done their work as they have each sovereignly chosen to take on their responsibilities. So then we get to the Holy Spirit, and we are now looking at his uh, entrance into the salvation story of God's covenant people. So it had been God the Father, Jehovah God through the Old Testament. Jesus shows up, and he says that he is that God, and we have that advent. And then here's this lovely part of Jesus' last instructions to the disciples. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now Jesus in John 14, 15, 16 teaches the disciples a whole lot about the Spirit. He says, um, I will ask the Father and the Father will send the Spirit. So there's the proceeding from the Father and was it from the Son as well? Well, the Son asked the Father, the Father said, may it be so, and so who proceeded the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, I I will not leave you without a comforter. I will send you another comforter. And there are a few ways to say another in Greek um, and in Aramaic, which Jesus probably would have been speaking. Um, And there's another of a different kind, and there's another of exactly the same kind. So you go to the grocery store and you say, this apple is rotten. I'd like another one, please. Well, what do you want? Another Granny Smith? Yes, I want another of the same kind. Oh, because we don't have Granny Smiths, but we do have Spartans. No, that's not another of the same kind. That's another, but another of a different kind. I don't think that helped anything, did it? But, so Jesus said, I'm not going to send you a different kind of comforter. I will come to you. That's what he said. I will send another comforter, another of the very same kind. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. So Jesus is saying that his continued um, involvement and presence with the disciples will be as the Holy Spirit. So he says to them, we have this little sort of transition that we have to take care of, so do not move. Like, stay put in Jerusalem. And I envision some little conversation among the disciples who are excited about the resurrection. They want to go tell people. And they say, let's just go. And Peter probably said, nah, don't do it, guys. Like, don't go off on your own. I tried that. It does not end well. So whatever he says, we have to do. If he says, stay here, we better stay here. So they stayed put. And they waited for what the Father promised. Problem is, we don't know what that means. What did the Father promise? And Jesus says, and you heard it from me as well. So I just told you a little bit about what we heard from him. But when did the Father promise something to them? So the clear answer to that is that the Father promised this to them in the new covenant promises of the Old Testament. So without overwhelming us in all of this, let's fill the the story out like this. In Ezekiel 36, God discloses what's going to happen in the new covenant, in the future. So he he begins here speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, I'm going to do something, and I'm not going to do it for your sake, Israel. I'm going to do it for my holy name, which you have profaned. Everywhere you've gone, You've profaned my holy name. So I'm going to do something, not for your sakes, but because I'm tired of how you've been behaving. You have profaned my name among the nations. So, first of all, I'll forgive you for that. But then he goes on and he promises something. And this can be the only thing we link back to that is what um, Jesus is referring to. He said, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to give you a new heart 
because you have bad hearts. They are stony. They're calcified. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you will be moved internally to obey my ordinances. So there were two problems with more than two, but we can maybe summarize into two how the old covenant people failed. So they failed, first of all, because they, they willfully and blatantly disobeyed. They, they were told to do things, and they did not do them. They were told not to do things, and they did them. So God says, and the result of that is that the nations scorn my name. You have profaned my reputation in all of the nations. So I'm, for the sake of my holy name, I'm going to fix it because you violated our covenant. I told you what was expected, and you actually disobeyed it. The second failure was that they couldn't live up to it. So even if they did not intend to disobey the law, they couldn't keep it. They couldn't fulfill it. So they were deficient. Um, They were of bad intent and of limited ability to meet the expectations of the law. And God said, the thing that matters more than anything else is my glory, my reputation. So I'm going to change your ability to obey my laws. So I'll forgive what you've done. It's gone. But after that, I'm going to give you a new heart. You're going to have different desires and a whole different nature. And I will put my spirit in you. We, we tend to always sort of bring that down to the individual and say that, you know, individually they sinned or didn't reach the standards of the law. And, and so God was forgiving them individually and giving them new hearts individually and giving them his spirit individually. He also, though, was doing it communally. He was doing it for his people. So into the midst of his people, his covenant people, he would introduce forgiveness, a whole new spirit of, of desire, and the Holy Spirit in their midst to accomplish his, his ordinances. So when we get over to the day of Pentecost, it all begins to make sense. So Jesus had said, the, the old covenant's over. You broke it, and you couldn't keep it. So why would I send you out with this new message without the Father's promise. So don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. How John's baptism could be compared to them being baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm not quite sure. Um, they were, Maybe if they were good Baptists and John's baptism was actually immersion, maybe that's it, you're immersed into the Holy Spirit. Or maybe John's baptism was pouring over their heads and that... The Holy Spirit is sometimes um, symbolized that way. That's probably actually how John baptized. But don't tell your Baptist friends because they don't know. Jesus says um, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when he comes, you're going to be my witnesses. Oh, wait, wait. So they profaned his name among all the nations. And now Jesus says, you're going to witness to my death, burial, resurrection, my life, my teaching, all of those in the new covenant, you're going to go to the whole world and it's going to be the completion of what the Father promised 
which is don't leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, he's going to do all of these things for you. So Jesus says, stay put in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, and then go, because you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to, to the uttermost part, of the remotest part of the earth. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, is now the agent of God most present to his people. And yet um, Francis Chan wrote a book not too long ago called The Forgotten God and charges us with having forgotten about the Holy Spirit. And honestly, for reasons sometimes not of our own making because we just don't understand, or for reasons of confusion practically that we've seen some things that are said to be the Holy Spirit, and, and we just aren't sure. Um, and because we also feel personally deficient, and we have people tell us things that they experience of the Holy Spirit, and we haven't, and so we think we are third-class Christians or something. So we get confused, and I think we, we get discouraged, and yet the story of God's covenant is now being effected and told by the Holy Spirit's presence. So we need to welcome the Holy Spirit. We need to ask ourselves, in what way do we individually or corporately need to make sure that we're listening to this balconeer talk and saying, boy, I'm not so sure that we really are experiencing the fullness of the Spirit as we're supposed to. Certainly the way he came was spectacular. And the things that happened immediately after his coming were spectacular. And the way God is working by his spirit all around the world today is still spectacular. And so much of what we have in, in our sort of our custody as believers, the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit inspired those for us. So the spirit has been, is at work. Um, but maybe this morning is a good time for us to just sort of stop on the path and say, okay, talk to us, balconiers. Um, do we need to be receiving more of the Holy Spirit? Um, when, when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He, he com- comes into your life, which is, is, is astonishing, right? And the model of that is the chaos to order of Genesis chapter 1. So the spirit broods over the chaos, and then he brings light. Well, the Holy Spirit broods always over our lives and always moves chaos to order, brings unbelief to belief, um, brings tragedy to triumph. He's just always, always at work like that, and it's what he did for creation. And it's, it's now, it's almost as though in a, in a friendly card game sort of way he said to the father and the son okay my turn right not to be sacrilegious but the father you got it all organized um son you got it done and man you came down there in this but there's a lot of work to do so i'm ready to do it here i go and jesus says yes and disciples don't go anywhere until he comes and the father says and Give up any notion of being good enough to please me. You can't. Receive what I've given to you, a new heart, and my spirit himself, like it's God. 
It's not an inferior God. It's not a spirit. It's, it's God, fully God, has come to take residence in our lives. It's incredible, isn't it? That when you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror, you were looking at the temple of God, that, that God is in and through you, that at the depth of your being, you long to know him and please him. That's, that's where joy is to be found for you. And um, the Spirit of God wants to live in and use us. Let me read um, a poem by Malcolm Geith um, that is about the Trinity and I think is a good way for us to. In the beginning, not in time or space, but in the quick before both space and time, in life, in love, in co-inherent grace, in three in one and one in three in rhyme, in music, in the whole creation story, in his own image, his imagination, the triune poet makes us for his glory and makes us each the other's inspiration. He calls us out of darkness, chaos, chance, to improvise a music of our own, to sing the chord that calls us to the dance, three notes resounding from a single tone, to sing the end in whom we all begin, our God beyond, beside us, and within. Isn't that gorgeous? So I leave you with that. <laughs>